Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. Man, it is so fun uh, to be back here with you guys. Uh, I am Vietnamese, and honor is a really big deal in my culture. And I just want to honor Pastor Scott and Kelly. They're just amazing pastors for a long time as, you know, a young buckaroo pastor looking up to people like Pastor Scott. Amazing encouragement uh, to guys like myself. And so a huge honor to you, uh, Pastor Scott. And also this community is amazing. Uh, I have been able to be a guest uh, as just a normal churchgoer for like the first time in kind of my career, kind of going around different churches. But being at this community has been really special. Um, I love co- showing up. And when you're new, sometimes you go to places and you're just a stranger. Nobody says anything to you. But here, when I'm here at Church on the Hill, um, people say, hey, are you new? And they introduce themselves. I really love that. And that is a really special thing. Um, that Don't overlook that. That's a really special community. So it's a huge honor to be here. And uh, I have been a campus pastor at Valley Christian now for only eight months. So brand new to this. But for the past 16 years, I have been working with students and families. And over the past 16 years of working with students and families, I've kind of learned something that is true about our humanity that I see over and over again. And that is authority is aggravating. Don't you know that to be true? Whenever somebody comes to you with authority, you're like, wait, who are you to tell me what to do? Now, I have a person in my, in my family. I'm not going to say who. But uh, we were, they were in uh, Maui, and they're on vacation. And if you've ever been to Maui, you see these little signs everywhere that say something like, hey, don't walk on the grass, mahalo, right? And then they'll, you'll walk around, you'll see another thing, be like, don't hang off the edge of a cliff, mahalo. And all of a sudden, there was somebody else in the family who all of a sudden had this moment where they paused and they said, you know what, who is this mahalo guy, and why does he keep telling me what to do? And that's when somebody else stopped in the family and said, Mahalo means thank you, you idiot. Right? And I, it also has something about that story that kind of resonates with us, right? That we get this sense that when somebody uh, tries to put their authority on us, we kind of have this aversion to it and we want to push back. And now this is something that we've all experienced from the time that we were on the playground because there's always that one kid who thinks that their way of playing the game is the proper way of playing the game. Do you know what I'm talking about? And when they try and push their rules on you, you say, hey, you're not the boss of me. And I wish I would stop on the playground, but then we grow up and we go through this weird thing called puberty, right? And we we lock ourselves in a room and then we grow out our hair in rebellion and we bemoan the fact that our parents just don't understand. And we've got to fight for the right to party, right? If you know what I'm talking about, we can be friends. If you don't, Please email Pastor Scott, okay? Um, but we grow up and we just complain about, about the, whatever authority structure that we have over us, whether it's our boss, the higher-ups, the government, whatever it is, that there's a sense of authority that we want to just push back on. And I wish I could say that this was a religious people thing, but this isn't a religious people thing. This is actually a people thing. In 2018, in the Journal of Neuroscience, they did a study about humanity's control aversion. 
And so they put our brains on this, not put our brains, somebody's brain, in an, in an MRI. And, and basically what they did is they did these studies to figure out what does the brain do whenever they get a sense of somebody putting their authority over them. And they said that something happens in our parietal lobe and our dorsal free prefrontal cortex, as we all know. Actually, I didn't know that. I Googled it. But it was really interesting, okay? You should Google it at some time. But they said that something happens in those two areas of the brain that fires off whenever we sense a person holds sway over our decisions and our actions. Whenever we get our sense that our individual autonomy or our agency is violated, that it causes this desire to rebel. Now, this is all really, really nerdy stuff, but I think that there's something unique about this because this is something that we see in the very first pages of Scripture, don't we? We see this actually in the Garden of Eden, that humanity has a complicated history with authority. And even when there was absolutely no reason to distrust the creator of the universe, when Adam and Eve had no reason to say, you know what, God, I don't know if you have my best interest in mind. And when he's given us everything to thrive in all of our identity, everything that we possibly need, we still determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. That we have internally this desire for autonomy, even if it meant our own destruction. And isn't that exactly what God said would happen if they wanted to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil? And what I've kind of realized when we look at the story is that our aversion to authority has rarely ever worked for us since. How about you? But the story of Scripture is amazing because God continues to invite us into relationship with Him, calling us to live in submission to His love, His truth, and His leadership, and His wisdom in our life. Not because He's a dictator, not because God wants to be cruel, but by submitting our lives over to Him, it leads us to life and love and wholeness and healing and the peace that we actually desire for our life. You see, God in His love always allows us to choose But we have to live with what our choices actually mean. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God has delivered his people from Egypt, from slavery, and he's been with them even in their rebellion. But just before they enter in the promised land, he says, I give before you two things today, two choices. I set before you life and prosperity or death and destruction. And he says, if you walk in my ways and if you keep my commands, then you will be blessed and you will live and you will increase in number. But if your hearts turn away... Oh, you're choosing death and destruction. And spoiler alert, if you ever read through the scriptures, we see that Israel will end up choosing their own will and their own way over and over and over again. But God never gives up. He would send prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah to woo them back into relationship with him. And they speak with the authority of God, with things like, like words, like phrases like, thus says the Lord. <laughs> And Israel in those moments have this choice whether they're going to listen or whether they are going to rebel against authority. And more often than not, they end up rejecting all of these prophets. And the reason why all of this is important because this is actually playing into the background of the passage that we get into today as we continue through the story of Jesus in the book of Mark. 
And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And I know when I first became a Christian, I was 16 years old. I didn't really know my way around the scripture. So the easiest way for me to get to uh, that passage, if you have an analog Bible like myself, is to open up halfway in your Bibles. You'll probably be somewhere in the Psalms or something like that. You're going to flip yourself right past all of the hard-to-read Hebrew names, and you're going to slow down when you get to the names that you would name your sons. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are going to be in the book of Mark chapter 11. And as you turn there, sort of a a bit of a background as Pastor Scott unpacked for us last week, that Jesus has entered into the last week of his life and kind of contrary to popular belief, Jesus does not enter into the last week of his life uh, with this sense that he is going against his will as, as, as something that's innocent, going into the slaughter. But rather, Jesus in the last week of his life is more intentional than ever. Everything that he says and does was a sense of intention. So whether he's cursing the fig tree or he's turning over the tables, he's confronting the authorities on their home turf. And so that's a bit of the background as we get into Mark chapter 11. So we're going to start in verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Who made you boss? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Such a typical Jesus thing. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed this amongst themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, then why didn't you believe them? But if we say of human origin, and I love that there's like a dot, dot, dot there because it's like a pause for dramatic effect. And we get an insight into what they're thinking. They say they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. See, what's interesting as we look into the story in this passage is that by first century, the Jews have actually suffered years of being conquered and exiled and conquered and exiled. And so they are very wary of people who are trying to come and rock the boat. And whenever people try and rock the boat, it has never typically ended well for them. And so there's this obsession with control and teaching that is authorized by the religious leaders. And so they go up to Jesus and say, by what authority and whose authority are you teaching and are you acting? Now by authority, we mean that it's referring to the right to exercise power, dominion, jurisdiction, or influence over something or someone else. And generally, according to the ancient world, you kind of gained authority in one of three ways. The first way is one that would have been their default mode, which is that you take it by force. They've seen this before. They saw it with Nebuchadnezzar. They've seen it uh, with Alexander the Great. You take authority by force. The second way is through earning it, through influence and trust, through teaching, being within a community. And the third way is that it was given to you as a gift. It was imparted. Maybe it's something that you actually inherited by your family name. And so to a first century Jewish leader, all of your authority actually came from the temple. But it was actually probably more accurate to say that your authority came from the fact that the temple was being backed by King Herod and the Roman army. And so all of this sense of authority came by fear and force. But now all of a sudden this rabbi from the backwoods of east side San Jose rolls into town. And he overthrows the money changing tables in the temple courts. And he's calling them out on their home turf. In Hebrew, they would have said that Jesus had chutzpah. 
Now, we might think that there maybe he was being insolent, but that's not the case at all. What Jesus was doing was actually, he was actually confronting their authority in order to make a theological point. You see, there's this parallel story that happens in John chapter 2 when Jesus is turning over the tables. It's actually symbolic of him turning over the whole system of sacrifice and the way that people relate to God. And then Jesus will go and he says, you tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he wasn't talking about the temple or the buildings or the rocks or the stones. He was talking about his own body. And he's saying that something greater than the temple is here right before you. And from now on, you can have relationship with God in and through me. But when Jesus begins pushing against the systems of power and their economy and their religion, all of a sudden their prefrontal cortex is firing on all cylinders. And they want to know by what authority are you actually doing this? And what was meant to be a trap ended up becoming a testimony to Jesus' authority. See, one of the reasons why this question of authority is so important in the gospel of Mark is because one of Mark's objectives is to establish Jesus' authority with God's authority himself. And it's our response to his authority that's going to end up changing everything. And so throughout Mark's gospel, we see this display of Jesus' authority in the people's response. That they're amazed by his teaching in Mark chapter 1. That they're amazed by his authority over evil spirits. And that they're amazed by the fact that he not only is able to forgive sins, but he can heal a paralyzed man on a mat. You see, it's interesting because Jesus is able to do only what God can do. And what do you think the reason is for that? Because he is God. One of the things that I hear over and over again in our culture is like, well, you know what? Jesus never claimed to be God, so how do I know that's true? And I always say, well, Jesus claimed to be God all the time. He just did it in a very Jewish way. You see, if Jesus can do only what God can do, what does that mean? But sometimes we miss it. We miss out on it. And the irony in Mark is exactly that, is that the people who should get it, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they don't get it. And the people who shouldn't, they do. When we look through the gospel, we see that it's the desperate, the demon-possessed, the Gentiles, and the sinners who get it. And my favorite is like up to Jesus' death. When Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last, that the first person to properly identify who Jesus is doesn't come from the mouth or the lips of a disciple, doesn't come from a religious leader, but the first person to make the right claim about God is actually a Roman centurion who was overseeing the crucifixion, in which he said, truly this man was the son of God. You see, there is great news in that. Because it's all the wrong people from the wrong neighborhoods with the wrong backstory who end up making the right claim about God because that is what we need most in this world. And here's why the religious leaders are speechless. The reason why they can't answer Jesus is because they know that their response to Jesus' question is going to demand an answer with their very lives. And it's either going to be in submission to the authority of Jesus or it's going to be in rebellion. It's going to be life or it's going to be death. And in typical Jesus fashion, he's going to pull a little kung fu here. And he ends up answering their question with a story. And so in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, he tells a story about a vineyard. I'm going to paraphrase it because, you know, I'm used to like preaching for 19 years, but we're not going to do that here, okay? But basically, Jesus tells this parable about a man who plants a vineyard. He sets it all up and he rented the vineyard to attendants in order to care for it. And at harvest time, he sent a messenger to come and collect some of the fruit from his own harvest. But instead, the tenants beat that servant and they send him away empty. And then he sends another and they beat him on the head and they send him away empty again. 
They send another and they kill him. And then finally he says, I'm going to send my only son, my son whom I love. And they say, let's kill them. And then we're going to be able to get the inheritance, which is a little bit crazy because that doesn't happen in real life, right? And now we look at this story and we're tempted to think this is just an indictment on the religious leaders. But the reality is I think that it's a reflection of us. The story is a reflection of us as well. You see, when Jesus talks about a vineyard, the moment he mentions a vineyard, a Jewish audience would have immediately known he's talking about us. Turn to your neighbor and ask him, is he talking about us? All right, I actually, I mean, I actually do that. Turn to your neighbor and say, is he talking about us? Turn back to that person and say, yes, he's talking about us. You see, the metaphor of the vineyard was actually a metaphor for God's relationship with his people all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Psalm 80. It's the reason why Jesus is going to use this imagery in which he says to, in John 15, he's talking to his disciples. And you will remember this when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us there. That we would have immediately known what he's talking about. But here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is actually tying it to what is being said in Isaiah 5 in which he talks about this vineyard. And so the first thing that we have to see is who does this field belong to? This field belongs to the owner, right? It doesn't belong to the tenants, but somewhere along the way, they falsely think that if they kill the son, they're going to take the inheritance. And the, the tenants start to think that they are in charge of their own vineyard. It's been so long, so they're like, really, this really belongs to me. But the reality is that it belongs to the owner, And they start to think, you know what, this owner is trampling on our authority, on our power, and our agency, and they begin to rebel. But isn't this what rebellion does? That it begins to skew our perspective of reality in which we start to think we are actually in charge of our life? And then when we end up reaping the consequences of our own actions, when we say, you know what, God, it is my will and my way, and then when things fall apart, we turn and then we blame God. We're like, how could you do this to me? (laughs) Or maybe that's just me, okay? But doesn't this what happens all the time? You see, when I read this story, I don't read this about some ancient people, some religious leader out there. I say, you know what? Like, this is my story. This is a part of who I am. But the good news is that the owner in his mercy sends servant after servant until he sends his own son. And I love when he tells this story because when we get to the end of the parable of the vineyard, he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. And he says, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And in order to get the fullness of what Jesus is saying here, he's actually referring to a Jewish fable that everyone would have known. And and this fable had a moral lesson to it. A lot for us, like um, the boy who cried wolf, right? Do you guys know the moral of the story of the boy who cried wolf? Okay, if you don't, email Pastor Scott. Okay, but it came with this moral lesson. And basically the fable goes like this. When Solomon was building his temple, he would send the direct correct dimensions of every stone that's needed for the temple down to the quarry. The quarrymen would end up cutting out that stone to the exact size and dimension, and then they would ship it back by Amazon two days prime, okay? And they would put it back in its right spot. And a cornerstone was actually the foundation of this building, which meant that this cornerstone would be the reference point in which all other stones would be referenced. But one day this cornerstone arrived, and it seemed a bit odd. It didn't quite fit. It wasn't what they expected. And so they tossed it down the Kidron Valley. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem's kind of built on this mountain. And then there's like these big three valleys that kind of go down. Well, they tossed this giant cornerstone down the end of this Kidron Valley because they're like, they made a mistake. But then all of a sudden, they put the whole building together and they realized, you know what? All these stones aren't quite fitting right. And they realized that the cornerstone that they needed was actually laying at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. 
Now, anyone who has ever built Ikea furniture knows exactly what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? You ever get to the end, you're like, where's this bag of bolts? Like, where did this come from? And you're like, must not need it. So you throw it away. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, those bolts were exactly what I needed to finish the project. Have you ever been there? Okay, maybe it's just me again, okay? But basically, Jesus is confronting them and they're saying, you guys are like the idiots who tossed the cornerstone down the Kidron Valley when you know that you needed it. And immediately the chief priests and the teachers of the law wanted to arrest him. Why? Because they knew that this story was about them. And Jesus is making this claim that he is the one who has been sent by God to be the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of all of humanity. And the very people who studied it, who memorized it, who watched YouTube videos on it, who, just, who like subscribed to the podcast channels on it, they missed it. And what's interesting about Jesus quoting here from Psalm 118 is this. Is that if you go to the chapter before, uh, Mark chapter 11, Jesus is rolling into town on a colt, on a donkey, right? And the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Guess where that quote actually comes from? It comes from the same psalm that he's quoting here, Psalm 118. It's the same psalm that we see in Mark 11. It's the same psalm that we see in Mark 12. And I love this because in Mark 11, they're cheering him on as the exalted king. And in Mark chapter 12, they've rejected him as the cornerstone of their life. It's almost as if Jesus is using this parable to invoke a response to say, it is entirely possible to cheer on Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior on our Facebook and our Instagram profiles and have it make zero impact on our very life. That's possible to recognize Jesus as king and then to reject his authority and withhold our loyalty. And so the question that it becomes for us is how will we respond to Jesus' authority? And so really quickly, just some observations about Jesus' authority and what it actually means for us. The first observation is this, is that Jesus' authority is God's authority. If you go and look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, it says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, that in him all things were created on heaven and on earth. And that all rulers and authorities, that he holds all those things together. And in everything, he might have supremacy. Which means that all things and all people will be judged according to Jesus and his words. The religious leaders did not want to answer the question because it demanded a response with their life. And I believe that the question is the same for us. That the truth is that we all respond to the authority of Jesus in either full submission or in opposition. And we know that ultimately, and according to Philippians chapter 2, that one day everyone will see Jesus as he truly is and that every knee will bow and be accountable to how we responded to his authority in our life. The second observation is this, is that Jesus is the supreme authority of God. If this is true, then Jesus desires to be the cornerstone of our lives, not a consultant. Jesus did not come to give us good advice on how we do things. He came to bring good news that changes not only our lives, but it changes our communities. In Matthew chapter 7, he tells this other parable about two people who build their houses on two different foundations. One on sand and one on the rock. You guys know what I'm talking about, that story? And he's, what I love about this passage is whether you build your house on the rock or whether you build your house on the sand, that the rain and the storms come from them both, come for them both. And the difference is the strength of the foundation of our life. And I think that sometimes in our culture, we treat Jesus as a consultant in which he came to preserve our preferences and our comforts rather than to submit ourselves to the crucified Messiah to take up our cross daily and to follow after him. 
We have to remember that when we submit our lives over to him and we give him authority, that he isn't this authoritarian dictator, but he came to give us life. You see, when we invite Jesus to be the authority in our life, it actually lowers the volume of what consumes our life. It lowers the volume on what consumes our life. As a pastor in this season, I've never been more acutely aware of this cycle of doom scrolling. Okay, do you guys know what I'm talking about? We're just like searching the news and all you see is bad news and it's an endless number of things to fear. The pandemics, the wars, the economy, the politics. And there's an endless number of voices who are willing to feed that fear for you. That there are influencers and YouTube channels and chat rooms that are happy to fuel our outrage and our panic, robbing us of the peace and our hope for a future. Now that I'm back working with students over at a high school, I see this over and over again that we are raising up a generation of students who say over and over again that the number one thing they experience is anxiety. And I'm not surprised because that's the world that we've built, that we've said that there's everything to fear, but that's not the kind of life and the good news that the gospel offers us. We have within us a powerful message that we need to live into. The point of Jesus being the cornerstone of our lives is that he can withstand the full weight and the pressure of our life. Um, I, I live, I'm actually a, a neighbor of the Myers family, and our house is built on all of this farming land, which means that our house cracks all the time. And so at one point, I'm like looking at all the cracks in our house, and I'm like, you know what, something's wrong with our foundation. And so we like invested a ton of money to be able to like rebuild the foundations of our house and to set our house on pier so it doesn't shift whenever it rains and doesn't crack every time that it's dry. And when I think about this season of COVID and what we've been through, one of the things that I've realized is that this has become sort of a metaphor for my own life. That when literally the rains come and when it dries out and there's drought, that we begin to see the kind of foundation that we have underneath our house. It looks great on the outside, but when you go on the inside, you realize, man, there's some things we need to work on. You see, the good news in what's happening here is that if you realize that maybe your house and the foundations of which you build your life maybe have cracks, the good news is that you can rebuild. You can rebuild and re-pour strong foundations in order for us to rebuild our lives on what matters, that we can rebuild our lives on Jesus to have the peace and the life that he offers us in Matthew 11 and John 10 and Philippians chapter 4. And he says, if you're anxious for anything, the good news is that we can pray and we can submit ourselves over to God. And what he says is he gives our hearts and our minds peace in Christ Jesus. And the last observation is this. Jesus actually imparts his authority to us. You see, unlike every other conqueror and every other ruler that we see in the ancient world who takes on all the authority and they want them all for themselves, what's amazing that we read in the Gospels is that Jesus imparts his authority to us. And so what does that mean? It means this, is that whenever we pray and we say, in Jesus' name, amen, it doesn't mean, now let's eat, okay? <laughs> Which that's typically what it means in my life. But here's how I understand this. If we've ever seen, like, you know, hopefully this has never happened to you in real life, but you've seen it in movies, right? Whenever a police officer comes and he says, stop in the name of the law, right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Now, it's not because he, he gave some kind of magical incantation that makes us, like, freeze and stop. But the reason why we stop is, not because the officer himself has, has conjured something within himself, but there's something behind the authority of the words that has been imparted to that person in order to enact. And so when we say, in Jesus' name, amen, what we are actually doing is we're invoking a greater authority than ourselves. And so what's being said is that Jesus says that he has been given all this authority, but he has given that authority to us to act on behalf of the kingdom. 
that we are able to give life and wholeness to our communities and our neighborhoods that so desperately need it. And the truth is you don't need to be trained to do this. You don't need to have like all the right answers. You just need to say yes. And so as we close today, we want to close with the three questions that you've been talking about in Mark. The first one is who is Jesus? Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives and the cornerstone of scripture. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus can bear the weight of our lives. And what does he expect of his followers? To fully trust him with our lives and live with the authority of the kingdom everywhere. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for this good news that is able to change our lives. I want to thank you for the fact that when we choose to make that courageous step to put our trust in you, to submit to your leadership and your authority in our life, that you're not doing that to be cruel and you're not doing it in order to be a dictator, but you're doing it because we know that in submission to you, we find life, that we find healing for our weary souls. God, we have within us the good news of the gospel, not because it's something conjured from within us, but because of the truth of your son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do this. And so, God, may we live as representatives of your kingdom everywhere we are, on our soccer teams, uh, in our workplaces, and the places that we like to play. God, thank you for this community. Thank you for what this community represents. Continue to fill this community with your spirit that it might reach all of the Bay Area for the good news of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.